welcome to Chat with the Designers, your live, online, interactive weekly magazine for homebrewers, QRPers, and ham radio ops on a worldwide basis. This is your co-host, George N2APB, along with the other co-host, Joe N2CX. And tonight we're going to be presenting a really exciting session of Chat with the Designers called Feedline Frenzy. If hopefully you've all had a chance to take a look at the whiteboard material that we had posted. And if you see more information posted there than can possibly be talked about this evening, I think uh, that's a good assessment. We uh, pulled together a lot of information here that it is just really relevant to the whole topic of selecting a coax, selecting a feed line in general, what kind of antennas go with what kind of feed lines, how to measure your feed line performance, what can go wrong, what can go right accessories, performance data, and the list really is quite sizable for such a small and narrow topic, all said and done, as far as feed lines are concerned. Just uh, eight or nine tiny little letters put together, but it's a big topic for all of us. We all move RF around the shack and out to the backyard or up on top of the roof or up into the trees, up into temporary antennas on tripods, you name it, as far as trying to get RF out of our our projects, and up into the ether. That's the whole name of the game, of course, as far as us and ham radio and uh, operations are concerned. So these different topics that we mentioned here and that are enumerated on the page are just really relevant to our day-to-day life as hams. Sometimes, and I admit that I was one of them when I first started off without a license and back in, uh, back in my high school days and stringing a wire around the room and I thought that would really do the job. I've come, of course, to understand hopefully as everybody here has, is that that's not the most optimum type of situation for many, many reasons. Well, we're taking the next step forward relative to understanding what some of those reasons are and actually using some equipment to understand the performance of our systems. We'll be discussing this evening some tried and true techniques, some guidance, and hopefully everybody will have a chance to really contribute here. If we say something that kind of puzzles you, or if you have an alternate view of what the current point that's being made is, please, by all means, raise your hand. We'll be glad to turn the microphone over to you. We had a number of people contributing material to the um, presentation, the show for tonight, and uh, we are posting it just as much as we can. You'll see it uh, along the way, whether it's from Yuhan Inikowski, OH2NLT, and, uh, famous for the, uh, the Juma product line. And, of course, my partner on the SDR Cube, you'll see contributions from Alan, uh, W2AEW, and some live video links and such. So we'll see some good material here tonight. So we're going to try to move right along because at the uh, at the halfway point for the conversation, we're going to actually have our usual activities, which focus on a project that, that illustrate the different principles of operation. And this week's project is really going to be a multiple weeks project is something that Joe and I really have been wanting to do for some time ourselves for our personal projects and we'll get into it later on but I think nothing really motivates Joe and me to be speaking about things with such enthusiasm weekly dedication as the projects that we bring about here on chat with the designers Joe, do you want to kind of kick us off this evening? All right, George. Yes. Good evening, all. It is indeed a, uh, a very interesting topic. I always point out to uh, folks that hams tend to be a uh, kind of a distinguishing characteristic, something you can always tell hams by. They've got a, antennas are, that is. They've got an uh, antenna on the house. They've got an antenna on their car or more than one on their car. Um, they've got a uh, handheld radio with an antenna on it. And antennas have uh, a lot of interest to hams and of course uh, feed lines go hand in hand with antennas as the way to get uh, get the uh, uh, the energy from your radio to your to your antenna and uh, George is referring to a uh, an ex um, German chancellor on the uh, on the uh, uh, messages uh, box um, he says, sometimes an antenna on the helmet, M-U-T, as in Helmut Schmidt. Yes, we've seen people, uh, one of our good buddies from Jersey QRP now, now in SK, uh, Clark Fishman, used to walk around uh, um, Dayton with a hard hat with a rubber duck on the top. He made QST and 
in other magazines a number of times. All right, anyway, let's get to the uh, the topic at hand. Feline is, is something that is used, as George pointed out, to, uh, to pass energy, hopefully efficiently, from a radio to an antenna and from the antenna back to the receiver part of the radio. There are a number of different kinds of feed line, all with uh, their own uh, characteristics, um, benefits, and uh, shortcomings. Um, some of the um, uh, outlandish stuff, shall we say, that has its uses is uh, open wire line, which consists of a couple of parallel conductors spaced uh, several inches apart with, um, with by an insulator, insulator spaced every foot or so along the way. Uh, very low loss, uh, high impedance, and uh, good for a lot of uses. Uh, it is difficult to handle, unfortunately, and the high impedance often makes it uh, um, less than uh, less than generally acceptable. Uh, there are also ladder lines, which are a, a variant of the open wire line. Another balanced transmission line, uh, which is a little easier to handle. It has a polyethylene uh, webbing on it with air spaces. Also good, very low loss, good for high impedance uses, and uh, a little awkward to uh, a little awkward to uh, get going with unless you uh, unless you handle it properly. But uh, most of us use coax most of the time, coaxial cable. Coax consists of a, um, a center conductor. And you can see it in the uh, in the picture on the whiteboard. There's a piece of RG59, which is 75 ohm coax, usable more for TV use than ham use generally. But anyway, a coax consists of uh, uh, a center conductor in the middle, um, <clears throat> surrounded by a dielectric of uh, insulating material, uh, and then there's a an outer um, shield on the coax cable, which forms a second conductor. The inner conductor and the uh, outer shield form two conductors. They're unbalanced because uh, uh, one surrounds the other. And then there's a protective jacket on the outside of that. And um, the construction of the coax, there are any number of types we'll discuss, but uh, the characteristics of the, the uh, shield, the center conductor, the uh, uh, dielectric material insulating them and their physical dimensions have to do with uh, the properties of the uh, of the coax and that's primarily what we're going to be talking about some common types we use are rg8 rg58 uh, belden uh, i think it's 8914 as a common one and rg174 we'll see some tables on that um, along the way, we're going to talk about some some uh, methods for some matching for uh, terminating the far end of the uh, the cable, for determining uh, stub length, some of the electrical characteristics like its uh, uh, characteristic impedance if we don't know, and the uh, uh, propagation factor of the coax. We're also going to talk a little bit about um, connectors, type of connectors to be used and uh, bringing feed lines into the house, which is also an interesting topic. Um, and uh, toward the end, we're going to be talking about switching feed lines, some ways to do that. And, <laughs> and uh, uh, fraught with all sorts of uh, fun. Um, when I mentioned the business with the open wire line, um, it, it is, uh, it's good, it's low loss, it's um, suitable for um, antennas that are inherently balanced, like a, a dipole, it's used for other purposes as well. Um, but to get it to go to your rig, most rigs these days are designed to use a coaxial cable. So you have to have some means of uh, converting between the um, uh, balanced line and the unbalanced line. We talked a little bit about that in last week's session on antenna tuners. Um, there's several ways of doing it. Um, the, the best way is to, uh, to convert from the balance line to the unbalanced line is to actually use an antenna tuner that is inherently balanced uh, because it will, it will do, uh, it will do uh, 
um, a good job of efficiently uh, converting between the, the balanced and the unbalanced through tuned circuits and links on the tuned circuits. And uh, at the same time, it allows you to do some tuning to match impedances. Um, one of the difficulties when you use uh, a balanced line is often it's with an unmatched antenna. So that puts a high SWR on the, uh, on the, the balanced line. Not a bad thing necessarily because the balance line has low loss, the SWR doesn't kill you. But unless you efficiently transform that uh, high impedance and uh, widely varying impedance to the 50 ohms of the coax, you're going to lose power. One of the ways people do it is to use a ballon, which can be successful if indeed the ballon is designed to handle the impedances uh, and can handle uh, reactances. Therein lies the rub. If you use a ballon with um, a very bad impedance mismatch and with a um, large reactive component to the impedance to go either to a tuner or to coax, you're going to lose most of the power in the ballon. So there's an art to doing that, um, which is a topic for another time. Uh, it can be done, but uh, it's, uh, it's not always the best. Another thing, um, a balanced line that people have used lately uh, that is done for expediency is to use uh, what's commonly called zip line. Either the speaker cable uh, you see with uh, 20, 18 or 20 gauge uh, conductors or um, indeed even a zip cord, power cord. It can be used as a balanced line for an antenna. Um, uh, unless it has difficulties in that uh, First of all, it's balanced, so you have to handle the unbalanced to uh, balance convert to uh, the balanced to unbalanced conversion. You also have to handle the fact that it uh, it does not have a controlled impedance. Um, there have been measurements made on some various uh, types of speaker cables and and power cords, zip cords. The impedances range somewhere in the hundred ohm range, uh, which doesn't match any of the common impedances we see. And the other difficulty is that the uh, dielectrics are not uh, optimized for RF use, so they can be lossy. That said, if you're only going to use 20 or 25 feet and you're going to use it on the lower HF bands, it's probably not all that bad. You may get a dB or two loss, but uh, compared with uh, uh, not being able to put your antenna up in the air, the loss is probably minimal. On the other hand, if you've got a 100-foot run of zip line and you're operating on 10 meters, you're going to lose most of the power in that feed line. Um, most of the power indeed. And George says impedance can be calculated. Well, that's true for any feed line. Uh, if you know the characteristics of the feed line, if you know the conductor size, you know the spacing between the conductors, and most importantly, the dielectric material, you can calculate the impedance of the line. Generally speaking, most coaxes are in the range of 50 ohms up to 90 ohms, although hams generally use about 50 ohms. Open wire lines will be uh, generally 600 ohms or so, and the, uh, the latter lines I mentioned can be anywhere from 300 uh, up to 450 ohms or so. But with zip line, uh, if you have an unknown dielectric, uh, you really have to measure the impedance. You don't know what it is, and you have to take some means to uh, to measure it. All right. Um, I think I'm going to turn it back to George and let him go through some of the uh, the data charts and tables. We have a lot of info on coax, a lot of good information uh, about loss and the characteristics, comparisons of uh, various uh, coaxial feed lines. Take it, George. Thank you, Joe. Yeah, um, it, it's it's a wide and uh, varied field that of uh, that of feed lines in general. A lot of different kinds of cable are out there. A lot of different impedances too. When you take a look at some of the references that we provide relative to vendors supplying the um, their different wares, and you'll see all sorts of different impedances. Um, some are more appropriate or more commonly used for 
uh, CATV or or cable television uh, transmissions and others are for um, other purposes. In the tables that we provided on a whiteboard, I weeded out all of the, um, the non-50 ohm uh, variants. There are a whole lot more different models and um, uh, of coax relative to impedance. And uh, sometimes it's nice to see all of them, but it kind of muddies the water. So we kind of tried to narrow down what we see in the catalogs to something that might be of interest to us here. For example, I, um, I often, <laughs> I give my, uh, my buddy Joe a call when it comes time for my, every two years or so I need to, I want to replace my coax runs going out to the backyard. Uh, some are, well, they become buried over time because they get entwined in the grass and, and uh, they seem to be kind of uh, suffering the, 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 uh, the pains of weather and lawnmowers and, and kids riding bicycles and, and uh, rollerblades and such over them. So um, it's a good, I find it a good practice to replace it every once in a while. And every once in a while, I want to become invent, um, adventuresome and want to get into the higher-ended frequencies. Uh, and that slowly decays, and I, I drop back to the HF because they have the most fun. And it's the most forgiving frequency-wise for, uh, for me at this point in my career, my ham career. So, uh, but nonetheless, I look for, and I look for Joe's guidance on what kind of coax to get. And some of these items are in the charts. And we're going to review some of them some of the different characteristics and what it is that we and hence all of us ought to be looking for in a coax and relative to power handling capability, some of the, velo uh, the velocity factor, uh, the, uh, the percent shield, uh, the, just the different, uh, the, the amount of loss that is seen when, um, when transmitting different power levels across great lengths or great runs of the coax. For example, I made a kind of a, a silly comment about, uh, in quotes, so uh, I said RG174, you know, that really thin coax that we use to interconnect stages and some of our homebrew projects pretty easily. Some people, and, and this is not bad, but I mean, it's just maybe not the optimum. Life is a trade-off. So, um, taking RG-174 and running it 100 length, 100 foot length of it out to the antenna in the backyard or using 100 foot length of it leading up to a dipole that you have strung in the trees at field day um, is, is convenient. It's small. It can be wrapped up. It's lightweight. Um, it's hard. It's not too hard, not, not too easy to see it. So, you know, it's, it's a little bit stealthy. And it's easy to connect to. I mean, it's, everybody's kind of stripped off the end of RG-174 and had a chance to kind of solder it or solder connector to it. And it's probably among the more easy, uh, the easier um, coaxes to use physically because it's of its small size. But as you see in the chart, um, the first chart that we have shown, the, uh, the chart shows the amount of loss per 100 foot length of a given coax. So off on the right-hand side of the chart, you'll see different coaxes. Um, at the top of the chart is uh, uh, the larger, um, more, uh, the better, uh, less lossy types of coax uh, uh, types. And then as you progress down, down that uh, chart on the right-hand side of that, uh, the chart, you'll ultimately get uh, more and more lossy. And at the very, very bottom of the chart is RG174. And that corresponds to the uppermost curve in the actual uh, graph. Uh, so here we have uh, uh, the charts. And hopefully you're looking at that kind of uh, uh, cyan straight line, that diagonal line on the left-hand side. That's RG174 type. It happens to be Belden type number 8216, which, as I said, is at the bottom of the list on the right. It's certainly the most lossy per 100-foot run and it shows there that uh, at 100 feet, your loss is going to be somewhere around 8.5 dB. So, um, uh, let's see, uh, 4, 8, it's, it's a, a lot of power reduction is, is going to be, a lot of power is going to be lost in the run going out to, um, to your antenna if you're using that. Correspondingly, or on the flip side, 
is the lowest um, curve on that plot. It looks like it's a black or near horizontal at the very bottom. That corresponds to Joe is that one and a quarter inch. Is that like uh, hardline? Okay, so um, certainly hardline, and, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second, but hardline is the most, uh, uh, the best dielectric and the best shield, and uh, hence the um, least loss per given length of uh, transmission. And anywhere in between is what you see there relative to uh, uh, the other performance. Now, what's not shown here, and I find this kind of interesting, Joe, because it's very frequency dependent. And I don't, I just pulled a chart from um, uh, the N0HR page, um, and there might have been some other attribution of frequencies that were being used. But nonetheless, we see the relative performance of at any one given frequency to uh, of all the different uh, uh, coaxes. He's probably a UHF or an, a VHF or an UHF -er because the frequency, the chart starts at a mega, 100 megahertz and goes up to a gigahertz. Oh, you're right. And I see that. Uh, okay. Okay. I'm reading it. I was reading the chart wrong a little bit at first. So the frequency is along the bottom. I apologize. You're right. So down at 100 megahertz is, is probably uh, higher than we normally go in HF, of course, but nonetheless, it's uh, a good representation comparatively from one uh, to the other. So um, in general, it's going to be it's going to be kind of um, interesting and important to us in selection of a coax run that for the frequency that you're considering using, they, that you select the right kind of coax that'll provide a combination of the least loss and is the most efficient at that given frequency. You wouldn't want to take, for example, RG174 in this case and use it at uh, uh, up at the uh, 440 uh, um, in the VHF range, say 300 uh, to 400 megahertz, 400, uh, 432 megahertz. It's just not going to be a good thing to do, and that this chart illustrates that. And you're gonna you can help me out on this next chart that we have here. It's the coax data chart. It is a really information full. Um, chart that really lists the popular 50 ohm coaxes uh, that are on the market that we can get at the end of the at the end of this uh, at the whiteboard at the bottom of the whiteboard in the references section we have some links to the very popular coax uh, feedline vendors and they have charts and different kinds of selection applets and so on that you can use to find just the right coax for you. What we did here was we took um, a listing again from the N0HR page and eliminated everything but the 50 ohm coaxes, the characteristic impedances, uh, because that's pretty much what we deal with mostly. And then what we did is we highlighted the popular ones, the things that um, many of us have used over the years and probably have in use right now. Um, Belden 9913, 9914 is a very, um, is a very popular one. Uh, next up, and probably uh, the prices are not on here, but probably a little bit less expensive is the uh, the typical RG8, the 8A, uh, RG8U type of uh, coax. And then getting smaller yet is the RG58 uh, category of, uh, of coaxes. And then going down even further is the 174, the 188, and then the... Um, 213. We'll come back to the 213 because that's not not necessarily uh, uh, getting getting smaller. Um, shown in this chart, going across the chart, of course, is the impedance and the attenuation. Then at the four different, uh, three different data points. So it kind of relates to the chart above: 100 megahertz, 400 meg, and then a gig. So once again, showing probably that. N0HR is uh, a VHF and UHF enthusiast showing this data, but it's also good for us taking in for relative uh, comparison purposes. We can see how the coaxes uh, perform relative to each other. And if you use the 100 megahertz chart, you're probably not too far off relative to its use in the uh, HF and uh, upper, uh, lower, lower VHF. Then we see the uh, outer diameter I suspect that's in inches, of course. And then the velocity factor. We wanted to uh, 
wanted to talk tonight about velocity factor, and maybe that's where I'll next toss it over to Joe, because the VF, or the velocity factor, is a good figure of, uh, of merit for how the coax performs relative to the given frequency that you're operating at, and, and it is essential, actually, if you wanted to get pretty precise lengths of, uh, of feed line, which people do when constructing certain kinds of antenna, wherein the feed line itself is part of the antenna radiating system, or at least matching uh, the radiating portion of the antenna, it's important to get the exact precise physical length of the coax, and that, uh, and that will relate for a given coax because of its dielectric type and uh, other characteristics um, are represented in the velocity factor, uh, which turned out to be for the electrical length, how long that is uh, um, in electrical sense. And you need to consider those uh, that factor, of course, when creating the different lengths for stubbing, matching, and uh, as I said, matching to your antenna. Joe, do you want to continue on with this chart? Certainly, yeah. One of the thing that things that comes to mind and uh, Jordan and I did discuss a little bit of it ahead of time, was that uh, if you look, if you look for, example, for example, if you look at the 99.13 and 99.14, something stands out uh, very clearly to me at any rate. Um, you can see, particularly if you look at the um, um, loss at a uh, 100 megahertz, 1,000 megahertz where they're compared, the 99.13, has four and a half dB loss, 100 feet at a gigahertz. 99.14 has nine dB. That's a two to one factor. The diameters are basically the same. The impedances are the same. But if you look at the velocity factor, you'll notice that the 99.13 coax has a uh, velocity factor of 0.82, while the 99.14 has a velocity factor of 0.66. What this tells me is that 99.13 has a solid polyethylene, I'm sorry, 99.14 has a solid polyethylene dielectric, while 99.13 is a foamed polyethylene dielectric. So there's a significant amount of air in the 99.13, which gives you quite a bit less loss. In fact, you can see it at a 1,000 megahertz, the dB loss is half, uh, which is, Quite, quite important. So that, that's one of the factors that comes out from uh, coax is dielectric indeed can be very lossy. And the more air you have in there, the less dielectric, the, uh, the less uh, physical dielectric in terms of plastic, the less loss you'll have. The downside is that uh, the bending radius is greater uh, if you have the foam type dielectric in there. You can do other, uh, uh, you look at other type coaxes and see basically the same thing. Um, with a foam, the bending radius uh, just means that you can't bend it as sharply because the foamed dielectric is a little more flimsy and it'll tend to deform the dielectric and the stuff will short out if you bend it sharply. When you have a foamed dielectric as opposed to a uh, continuous dielectric, the, and um, some of the same information comes out of the next chart, which is a, a cable power rating um, chart at various frequencies. And here he does go down to uh, uh, one megahertz. For example, if you look at the um, uh, RG8 mini and the 8X, which is indeed a foamed dielectric, the power handling capability is four kilowatts at a megahertz. 10 megahertz, it goes down to 1,500 watts. By the time you get up to uh, a gigahertz, it's only 150 watts. The uh, reason for this is that um, there's a significant loss in the coax, and the, the higher the loss, the hotter it gets as you put power into it. So when you have more lossy, uh, more or less lossy feed lines, the power handling capability uh, really drops off the frequency. Uh, because it converts it to heat and converts your RF to heat and will eventually end up uh, damaging the coax. And if you go down to uh, RG174, believe it or not, at a, a, a megahertz, they say it'll handle a kilowatt. 
I wouldn't try it, but uh, then by the time you get up to a gigahertz, though, it'll only handle 35 watts. That tells you it's extremely lossy. Just by way of, um, and, and at the very bottom of the, the table are, are some, uh, some uh, hard lines. These are coax cables that consist of a, uh, a regular uh, copper center conductor uh, and uh, regular dielectric, but they have a, a hard metal shell, um, a stiff metal shell. doesn't bend very well. And uh, their losses are really fantastic. Uh, you can handle uh, 19 kilowatts for the LDF4 uh, cable at uh, a megahertz. And up um, even as high as a gigahertz, it'll still handle 500, uh, 551 watts. The physical size of the cable has, has to do with the loss as well. And uh, I'm not going to get deeply into it, but we've talked about dielectric as being a, a characteristic that uh, is lossy. But also, the smaller you get in diameter, the smaller the uh, conductor size is. That adds ohmic loss. So as you go smaller, it's a, it's a double gotcha. You, you have dielectric there. The conductors are closer to each other. The dielectric losses go up. And also the ohmic losses. Um, just uh, from the top of my head, as I recall, 100 feet of uh, RG174, for example, the real thin coax, has a center conductor resistance of about 4 ohms for 100 feet. So, so if you're pumping power through there in a 50-ohm line, you're losing, just from ohmic loss at DC, you're losing a significant amount of power um, in the, the center conductor. And uh, due to skin effect, the losses uh, go much higher as you go up in frequency. So picking a uh, feed line uh, is kind of a trade-off between the size you, uh, you can handle, the, uh, the weight, uh, the cost, the, uh, the bigger the coax, the, uh, more, uh, the less loss it has, uh, and uh, the more sophisticated the construction, for example, having foam dielectric, uh, the better you get, the more it costs. So you, you've got to uh, do trade-offs in, in those areas to, uh, to get the optimum for your situation. As I've mentioned uh, on the uh, text thing, I, uh, I tend to use uh, RG174 for jumpers around the shack where they're only short, uh, short uh, lengths the loss is low, and perhaps 30 feet for a feed line for an antenna. But um, the loss is acceptable there. If I'm, going to do, um, if I'm going to do something where I want a lot less, I'll use a much bigger coax. One thing we did not mention that um, has, also, um, has also gotten to um, uh, my attention has been um, there's another type of lo loss in coax that's not entirely obvious. Um, we assume that the braid covers 100% of the uh, dielectric material, that it's a continuous covering, uh, so that it contains all of the electric field within the, the coax. That's not necessarily the case. I had some coax cables some time back, which were very, very lossy, came from a local store, which also happens to sell uh, um, a lot of cell phones. Uh, Radio Shack's name will not be mentioned here. But it had about 75% braid coverage. Well, the stuff was lossy as heck. Uh, even though the it was claimed to be RG58 type, it probably had double the loss. And it was the RF just leaking out in the 75% braid coverage because it wasn't keeping the electric fields in the in the coax. And the other thing I found was, at least at VHF, um, a lot of interference got into it in receive. So it was not doing its job shielding. Very, very bad. Um, George wants me to mention uh, uh, the <laughs> velocity factor. Velocity factor as, uh, as a number in itself really doesn't have much to do with the loss. As an indicator of the type of dielectric, it uh, it does indeed. The um, the dielectrics that have more air in them tend to have uh, 
uh, faster velocity factor, less slowdown of the uh, the RF going through them, and uh, the numbers are higher. But that's just that's a matter of having a uh, more air in a dielectric, while the common solid dielectrics have lower velocity factors. Where it comes into play is more in uh, when you're trying to make a matching stub or a, uh, a coaxial yeah, ballon. You have to take yeah. the uh, velocity factor into account. So that's good to know about the velocity factor, Joe. Velocity factor is just a figure of merit relating to the... Uh, not a figure of merit, it's just a factor relating to the dielectric and the uh, uh, is useful in determining the right length of coax to use either for matching stubs or for getting to the antenna. So um, something that comes to mind here is uh, that let's, let's kind of make some generalizations before we transition to, into the practical side. In fact, this will transition us uh, pretty nicely, is that for a typical installation. Let's just talk about typical HF type of installation in in the uh, in the shack, and then out to the backyard, for example, out to the antenna. Um, what is what can be considered uh, a good recommendation? I mean, we all start off with RG58, um, maybe, and and learn that something thicker is going to be better and less lossy, and then we graduate up to um, RG8. And factors that make that uh, help us make that choice, or one way or the other, is that we need to fit it through larger or smaller holes as appropriate. We cannot bend the the thicker, the, the, the greater diameter coax quite as much to get around curves or snake them through some um, PVC piping, such as Joe. You know that I have that. Um, I put that into my house here to get coax in and out of the shack. But as it turns out, I can't get enough coax lines into that into that uh, portal, into that PVC pipe going from the outside here and then into, into the shack. So I've got a problem that I want to be uh, taken care of with one of the, the uh, with our project this evening, with the ability to switch an, an antennas on the outside and feed them all to the shack here over one coax, just by essentially creating a, a remote controlled coax switch on the outside. But nonetheless, that uh, factor is the thickness of the coax. I think um, when I had last um, asked you about recommendation for coax, you had uh, pointed me to the to the Belden um, products, and I would have to, to dial up to get the exact uh, number, ninety nine thirteen or ninety nine fourteen, as uh, probably good ones, and I was able to get that at the Wireman. I could have sworn that there was yet another one, a Wireman like uh, coax vendor, but I wasn't able to. Think of it, RF connection. Thank you. So we'll put that uh, that one into the into the links as well. But that for me, the ninety nine thirteen, I think, is what I'm using right now, is uh, a, the best combination for um, most efficient for the cost for the length of cable that I'm looking to to do. However, I don't want to for each one of my antennas, and I have maybe well, I have two. HF antennas, two experimental antennas, and and then a separate receive antenna that I'll, I'm always kind of switching around and, and, and whatnot. I don't want to have four or five lengths of these going out to the backyard. But um, these are the kind of things that go through my head when, uh, when I get things set up. I'm wondering if anybody here listening at this uh, in the session here tonight, if anybody has used a different kind of coax than what we've been talking about here this evening, or maybe even you're using ladder line or open wire uh, feeders. Yeah, Pete, go ahead. Yeah, um, I am using open wire feeders. In fact, you mentioned a few uh, weeks or months ago I was using a four-wire open wire line. That's been working out well compared to what I don't know. But what I wanted to mention here along the lines of coax is uh, I have for many years, many years used a good piece of RG6U on uh, two meters to uh, support what was originally a J-pole hung up in a tree, and I needed about 100 feet of coax. And the price of 99, 13, 14, or anything like that was just outrageous compared to what RG6 is available for. And it's worked uh, very, very well. I had to adjust the 
design of the J-Pole a little bit to match it up correctly, but once it's matched up, it works perfectly and presumably has really low loss because RG6U is a low-loss cable. There you go. And then sometimes if you come across some cable that has a different character uh, impedance characteristic, characteristic impedance, you'll, uh, you can also use it as long as you accommodate for the different impedances along the way and uh, save yourself some other money by using another cable that might be around maybe from your your CATV line uh, 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 stringers in the area or just a deal that you get from, off of somebody else. Ray, your question? Uh, hey, George. No, I wanted to comment that I had a very positive experience uh, a few years back with a 72-ohm twin lead. It was manufactured... Uh, uh, not too popularly, uh, but it was ideal for feeding a dipole antenna. Uh, and it had a power rating that uh, was well into the kilowatt range. Uh, heavy gauge wire, uh, but the uh, because it was lower impedance, the uh, conductors were much closer together. Uh, all you needed was a uh, ballon, a true ballon, uh, unbalanced to balanced uh, a network to uh, hook it up to your rig uh, work great. Oh, very good, very good, and good uh, testament to the fact that you can use other characteristic impedance as long as you take care of it one way or another. As many of us are QRPers, it helps us to make sure that we look at every length of the um, of, of the path from RF generation to RF radiation. Of course, the feed line is very much a, a big part of that equation. So if we look at the, to make sure that it is well matched at both ends, if it is um, efficient at the frequencies that were being used, I think you'll have the best possible luck relative to, you know, the the, uh, the challenges that we have at uh, QRP levels to begin with as, um, as well. Other experiences with coax, and I have I have one with ladder line to contribute in just a second here. Yeah, Mike, go ahead. Okay, I hope this is going to work. Uh, I use RG8X uh, a whole lot. I find uh, price is good. Uh, it's easy to work with. 9913 to me seems uh, overkill unless you're doing VHF for very, very long uh, coax runs. That's a great point. RG8X is um, is a great solution economical solution and maybe it's just my imagination or it tends to be a little bit more flexible too and it's really nice to work with the 9913 was that what you touched on was exactly the the decision criteria that i had i said i'm an occasional dabbler or at least i think i'm going to dabble in vhf so i said if i'm going to put one good run out to the backyard the back antenna and i've got like a replaceable um base mast upon which I can place different kinds of antennas from time to time. So uh, along with Joe, I experiment with different kinds of antennas. And if I ever wanted to do that on a VHF um, basis, I would know that I would be all set to do it with uh, coax that were capable or not too bad at the VHF frequencies. So that's a little bit of an investment that I made for future use if it ever came along. Um, good point, though, about uh, RG8X. My one experience with... Um, and it's not yet complete, with open wire feeder. Again, as based off of uh, Joe's guidance, I'm looking to put a an NFED ZEP, an NFED wire, from the peak of the house out to a back far, far back uh, tree. And um, a way that is popularized in a book uh, called, uh, um, shoot, Joe, what's the name of that book, Wire Wires? I'm not sure. Wire antennas, I think. Yeah, it's that one book that you got from me. I think it's Wire Antennas. It really featured using a, an open wire feeder. The wire uh, book. Yeah, the wire book. An open wire feeder up to the side of the house, and then one side of the um, one side of the open wire feeder ladder line, if you will is what connects to the antenna at the top. We talked about this in one of our earlier sessions, but it turns out to be a really good way to feed an NFED ZEP in which SWR needs to be accommodated in a certain way. So I'm gonna be using uh, some lighter line into my feeder, I'm sorry, some open feeder into my antenna tuning unit here in the shack for that purpose. So different kinds of feed lines, different kinds of purposes, 
um, everything from zipline to RG174 for short lengths to some of the more frequency capable, frequency efficient cables like the 9913, the Belden line. I urge you, we urge you to go to the different vendors and the two that we've mentioned mostly. Um, and there's a third one, the cable expert. So it's cable expert, the wireman, and RF connections. Each have some really good interactive uh, Java applets on their page and allow you to select your various parameters of importance and they give you a good selection of what uh, what they have to offer. So that's uh, that's what uh, we wanted to really kind of use to lead into the the, ch the problem that I kind of posed a couple of times and that's that uh, I personally have maybe four or five different kinds of antennas from time to time out in the backyard and I'm looking to have multiple ones for comparison purposes. I have another one up in the attic. I forgot about that one, a loop in the attic. So I want to, need to, got to be able to change um, antenna feed lines into coming into the station without bringing in four or five, six different lines of coax. Besides being expensive, it's hard to route into the house. A way to do that is to create a remote antenna switch. And if you um, go down to the project section of the whiteboard, you'll see what we have envisioned. We alluded to it a couple of times in the past. And what it amounts to is logically, it's being able to press a button or turn a switch here in the shack and be able to turn uh, the flip on and off relays at the far end out in the backyard or maybe just outside the back door, but outside over using the coax as the one control cable along with the RF cable in order to select which relay to switch in, that is to say, which antenna to select. So instead of running out to the back porch um, to and reaching out the door to turn a, you know, the standard uh, proverbial RF or um, uh, coax switch that we all have, the idea would be to press a button or turn a, turn a knob on the inside of the shack and have that RF switch that coax switch on the outside turn, um, uh, select a different antenna automatically. And there are two basic principles that um, we've already kind of reviewed and we're not gonna necessarily go into in great detail, but two basic principles of delivering different kinds of, in, uh, delivering information in the forms of tones across the coax cable from one location inside to the other location outside, and then a way to power the electronics on the far side, because you got to be able to have power for some of the logic circuits that, that we envision using. So the ability to power, apply power on the inside on the coax cable and have that power be tapped off on the outside without affecting the, um, the RF transmissions, but be able to power the circuits that are changing the relays. So um, I'm going to turn it back to Joe here in a second to kind of explain the system view. But what we envision is having a project that spans at least two, maybe even three uh, weeks. We'll probably touch on other topics in following weeks too. But we did want to take this project forward and move it forward because it's readily available components, inexpensive, and eminently usable by all of us. Um, and again, specifically, Joe and I um, have specific impetus to be, uh, to be creating this thing because we're going to use it. The mother of invention is need an inverse way of stating that. And uh, what we really have is a need for switching to coax. And I'll bet you that even if it's a switching between A and B, two different uh, positions, or maybe even switching between A, your antenna, and B, a ground uh, line right out there at your antenna might be a good thing to consider as far as uh, discharging static um, from the antenna um, occasionally or even during use. A lot of different uses that you might be able to think of this, but it uses the rookie that we, the, the rookie circuits, very simple circuits that we introduced uh, last session for remote control. And uh, those modules are, are readily available. Uh, so you can almost use it at the module level or you can build up your, your yourself using your own circuits. So these are some ideas that we're going to be implementing and, and chronicling and essentially using it in a nice watertight enclosure such that it's located out at the uh, at the base of the antenna or at the, the back deck where multiple antenna feeds come in together. 
Joe, do you want to take it a little bit further here? Certainly, George. Yes, as we go over the hour mark here. Yeah, as George mentioned, uh, what we want to do is to come up with something where most of the design is already done. Um, it's a matter of putting together the appropriate pieces um, using the rookie and um, oh, some some thoughts that I presented in a quickie. They're they're not original. Naturally, others have done it over the years, but uh, kind of a, a different application for hams here, where you can do a number of things, where we feed um, the control signals coax, uh, coax the control signals power and coax and audio over the coax from one spot to another. And um, basically what we want to do is to be able to do that over a length of probably a, uh, as much as a couple hundred um, feet of coax, um, figuring or probably RG8 uh, um, or 9913 type coax that has a relatively low series loss. Um, we guesstimate it's going to take about 12 volts at uh, 200 mils to do this. So uh, that's eminently doable over the coax line. We use what's called a triplexer to uh, inject the stuff into the coax and then to split it apart. And uh, <laughs> uh, um, using uh, chokes, capacitors, and resistors, uh, relatively straightforward. Um, and as George mentioned, a box inside the house with a uh, switch to switch it and then something outside using relays to uh, do the flipping. Um, it's very important that the thing outside, the controller outside, be uh, suitably uh, weatherproof. Uh, we don't want, uh, uh, don't want the water getting in there or spiders getting in there or whatever to uh, screw it up. So uh, we want to, um, uh, want to pick an appropriate box. The basic idea is to do this on the on the HF fan bands first to concentrate that on that, and it's it's relatively easy to do it with up to 25 watts of RF. They put bigger relays in and do um, higher power, but we're we're doing a um, uh, an initial design here that'll be relatively low power, although somewhat more than uh, somewhat more than uh, the usual QRP. We want minimum SWR degradation. We don't want to lose transmitters. And less than half a dB or so loss, which uh, corresponds to that 10% an hour. Yeah, I think I'm going, I'm okay here now with this control button. Thanks for your help. Uh, you mentioned about, uh, I don't know if I'm going to go off topic yet, but I see you're almost at the end of the hour. I don't know if you're going to quit, but parallel feed, uh, something that I've tried here. Uh, actually, I haven't tried it yet, but. Uh, we were at a flea market, and somebody beside me that I was selling left five rolls of RG63 uh, coax. And it's 92 ohm coax. And a friend of mine that's an engineer said, why don't you take each of these rolls and tie them together and make a parallel line, a feed. But here you've got the two centers as parallel feed, and it's shielded so you can run them through uh, metal uh, sightings and stuff like that. Have you heard anything about that? Uh, go ahead, Joe. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah, you can indeed parallel uh, lines like that. In fact, if you connect the shields together and the center conductors together, you'll end up effectively with a uh, um, a 93 divided by 2, which is um, about a 46 and a half ohm feed line. Or you could go with a balanced line uh, using just the center conductors. Um, in doing broadband transformers, I've paralleled coax that way. Great use of uh, available material. Yeah, well, that's what I thought. I just mentioned it, but uh, I never thought of it. But this friend of mine is an RF engineer, so uh, I like when he has some ideas. Anyway, you're doing a great job here, guys. I'm uh, very interested, and I do appreciate the MP3s. I've already emailed George, and he told me how to download them to my iPhone so I can listen to them when I'm driving, and especially the ones that I've missed. Very good, Norm. <laughs> Thank you for your kind words. Yeah, that's that's a good use for the coax. Anyway, the uh, the switch we're we're aiming at low loss, um, something relatively simple, um, and it'll be an evolving project. We're just going to present the the initial highlights and the design concepts tonight. But uh, what we came up with was um, a uh, 
<laughs> a, uh, uh, a waterproof box, which is a NEMA enclosure. It's shown in the, uh, the whiteboard here. Um, it's a plastic box that's about six by six by four. There are three views of it. There's a view of it uh, closed, view of it open, and then a, a view of the lid. Big plastic box that has a, a cover that sits on it that has a gasket, a, an inset gasket, so it is waterproof when you put it outside. It's used for electrical stuff. But um, what we want to do with the darn thing is to use it, put our electronics inside. Um, so unfortunately, we have to uh, we have to uh, impinge on the integrity of the box, shall we say? Uh, what we intend to do is, uh, and I don't have a sketch here. I apologize for not having that. But the box has a couple mounting ears on it. And if you mount the box vertically, the and keep it somewhat above ground, the bottom surface, um, if connectors are mounted on the bottom surface it will keep water from entering the box. So you can put the connectors on the bottom. We will have a sketch next week uh, and run all the connectors and connections on the bottom. It'll keep water from getting inside. And indeed, if you have coax connectors there, uh, you should also use a good uh, self-amalgamating tape or coax seal to seal the, uh, the coax connectors and the cable themselves so that water doesn't get into coax. You don't have to worry about sealing the connectors on the, the bottom of the box because water is not going to run uphill inside to any great extent. But because it's a sealed enclosure, you also have to uh, allow for a, um, a, a small drain hole, perhaps a, uh, a quarter, three-eighths of an inch drain hole on the very bottom so that any condensation that gets in there will be able to run out. And if you put a, uh, a mesh on there, a wire mesh, some screening, it'll keep critters out and allow, um, allow the water to drip out. And any water splashing up from below is not going to be able to get into that hole in any, uh, any great amount. Um, so we use, figure we'll use ordinary cable connectors. Um, George likes the uh, UHF connectors. I'm uh, the so-called UHF uh, PL259SO239 connectors. Um, I'm much more in tune with using BNC connectors, but uh, either can be mounted on this. And indeed, the reasonably large size of the box has to do with having enough surface area on the bottom of the box that we can get at least five connectors on there and possibly more if we expand it in the future. Um, Anyway, the coaxes, the, uh, the single feed line back to the house and the other four coaxes that will be switched will all come in through the bottom along with a drain hole. And um, it's not mentioned in my list, but I'm always belting suspenders. Uh, I would also have a, um, some stainless steel hardware on there with a wing nut and washers on the outside to connect to a good ground and then have the ground connected inside the box to uh, ground all of the coax shields so that uh, you have some static electric protection and uh, you're less likely to, uh, to uh, uh, have any stray uh, static charge get back into the house. Um, we'll have some more circuit details another time, but it does use the rookie components, uh, which are relatively straightforward. And, um, the basic design is laid out in concept, uh, famous last words, it's now a matter of uh, just pulling the pieces together, testing them, and uh, verifying that it all works. And one of the things we're really going to do with this is to document the heck out of it. We're going to show you step by step what has to be done, uh, detailed uh, schematic diagrams, um, ways to check it out as you're doing it. And we're also going to do some extensive uh, RF testing to assure that we're not degrading uh, the SWR of uh, the switch connections through this box. We're not um, losing power and we're not injecting uh, external noise in the thing. So we have the test equipment to do a good job with it. And we're going to open up the design so that it uh, primarily the folks here on the list or 
possibly anyone else, we might write it up, can uh, duplicate the switch. And uh, the design will evolve. We're starting off with a four position switch um, at HF. We may expand to more. Um, do you want to wrap things up, George? Sure do, Joe. And that's a, like a good, a good, uh, good ideas that you had there for the enclosure. We were puzzling on this most recently and um, had the approach of, of using this watertight enclosure. I knew that we would have problems with, uh, or at least challenges with how to connect coax to the box and, and have uh, the integrity, the, the moisture integrity maintained. And uh, our discussions really came brought out some ideas that were obvious um, and, and clever when you look at it in the uh, in the macro sense. And something that we want to really underscore with this this project here is that it's inexpensive. And this is not going to be something that's going to break the bank. This is going to be something that you can use and and build up relatively easily. And that's the big part of the design goal here too. So. Uh, I've, a future use of the project is that you, it doesn't have to be for coax switching. It could be for switching motors in a um, in an ATU, a base-mounted ATU. Um, saw a recent uh, design in QST last, um, what was it, Joe? Last October, I think. The award-winning article for October was uh, a remotely controlled ATU. It had a motor that drove um, the, an inductor, a rotary inductor, in order to gain a match on a 160-meter antenna or, or just overall HF. And this box could indeed control that quite easily, again, with, um, with appropriate power, if necessary, for the motor, of course, but uh, nonetheless, the box just hanging on a piece of coax will indeed provide those switching functions quite nicely. All right, so we've, over, we've covered an awful lot of material here for the evening. And darn, the time goes by so quickly. And we had much more material to talk about as evidence of that. We skipped over an entire section that I urge you to go to, and it's pretty self-explanatory. It's how to take an antenna analyzer, the proverbial MFJ259B, the Autec RF1, or da -da -da -da, the Micro 908 antenna analyst, and uh, to use it in order to measure various characteristics of your coax line. So supposing you want to measure what you've got. And uh, a way to do that is to connect your antenna analyzer up to it in the way shown in the pictures. And by the way, the pictures show um, a, um, a brother, a uh, design brother of the, of the Micro 908, which is called the ZM30 from Palstar. Um, kind of heavy-duty, tank-worthy, uh, version and it's a very solid product and so take your antenna analyzer connect it up to your coax under test either add the resistors or shorts or opens and you can determine the length of coax the distance to short the characteristic impedance the velocity factor all sorts of different things that are of use to you when you're actually constructing your system your antenna propagation system and then that's essentially everything from your transmitter out to where the, uh, the signal gets squirted up into the ether. So the more you know about it, the better you're going to be able to uh, construct it, and the better you're going to be able to use it, the more efficient and uh, knowledgeable you're going to be as a, as a ham operator using your, uh, your feed line. So we hope you brought some ideas here this evening to you that you will find useful. Come back as reference. Uh, please look at the, uh, uh, the measurement techniques that Alan uh, shows us in this YouTube video, a link at the bottom, and then you'll be able to really utilize um, um, the time domain reflectometer method for measuring your coax. Very, very helpful. And um, if you have any questions, feel free to get to Joe or me asynchronously after the, uh, after the presentations throughout the week. And please join us in the CTWDs chat or CWT. The chat with the designers um, website, uh, Yahoo group actually, and post your questions there. We'll continue some of these discussions right then and there in a usual um, email reflector manner so we can continue uh, the Q&A at that point too. So um, we'll give one last call for questions before we wrap it up tonight. 
Does anybody have anything that hasn't been uh, at least touched on briefly here this evening? Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Pete, go ahead. Okay, uh, one of you guys can do a much better explanation of this, or both of you guys, than, than I could, but uh, something to remind folks about the evils of common mode uh, RF transmissions on the outer uh, shield of coax. A lot of people think that just because coax is grounded and shielded, that doesn't mean RF isn't on the outside of it when in any kind of practical uh, installation it is. And uh, people have to be aware of that for dealing with RFI issues and a number of other things. Oh, yeah, that, that, could, be a, uh, that could be a long, long discussion. I, uh, much to my chagrin, I found out one time that my vertical antenna indeed needed a ballon to, um, to keep the common mode uh, coax, uh, common mode current off the outer shield of the coax. Um, generally speaking, it comes from either, um, well, using a dipole to um, fed with the coax, where you get uh, uh, energy from the dipole fed onto the, the coax, or some other means of uh, feeding current into the, uh, the coax shield. As a matter of course anymore, when I have uh, uh, questions about that, I have a couple current ballons, which are simply a uh, uh, couple, about 10 turns of RG174 uh, on a ferrite core that I stick in line experimentally to, uh, to try to lessen the common mode current. And uh, it's surprising how many times that will cure a, uh, a common mode problem where the coax is radiating or the uh, coax is, is uh, picking up uh, unwanted interference and conducting it uh, to a rig. Common problem, much more common than people realize, but uh, once you understand the mechanism, it's relatively easy to get rid of. Well, thanks all, one and all, for attending. We ran over a little bit, but not too badly tonight. And I um, hope you'll join us next week. We're not too sure just what the presentation is going to be, but whatever comes to mind, uh, I'm, uh, I'm sure it's going to be of interest to Joe and me and probably, hopefully, to a lot of you. And as I said, we'll, we'll continue, irrespective of, of what the topic is, we'll be continuing this, uh, the discussion of this design during the last portion of the, uh, of the program. So 73 to everybody. Thanks for joining. We'll see you all next week on Chat with the Designers.